Have you ever felt challenged with making life-changing decisions or leading in a public square or simply aligning your thoughts with your actions? Well, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Trust Your Voice Podcast. My name is Sylvie Legere, and as a civically engaged entrepreneur and mom, I understand the challenges of advocating for yourself and others while attempting to balance your personal and professional demands. I had to develop a personal system of success in every area of my life, and now I want to help you build your unique system and truly trust your voice, even and especially when it shakes. By the end of each episode, you'll be energized to spark your creative leadership, make purposeful connection, and confidently prioritize the matters that bring you the most joy. So let's start the show. Welcome to the Trust Your Voice podcast. My guest today is Chris Meek, who is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Soldier Strong. And aside from his philanthropic work, he's also the managing director and global relationship manager at SMP Global, and he's an adjunct professor at Syracuse University. We have a very detailed bio for Chris in our show notes. So I invite you to look at everything that Chris does. I'm so inspired and impressed with all of your engagement. Chris, welcome to the show. Sylvie, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor and pleasure to be here today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Well, Chris, I invited you to the podcast because I believe that your story will give our listeners a couple of keys. One is how to see opportunities, when to say yes to new challenges, but really also how to stay focused and how to build a coalition that's really impactful. So I'm excited to go through with you your journey and also your lessons learned and share that with everyone. So your journey, you build Soldier Strong, started 20 years ago, really on 9-11. And on that day, you were working at the World Trade Center at Goldman Sachs, and you felt a calling that day, having witnessed everything that happened in the World Trade Center. So tell us a little bit about that, how where it all began. Yeah, you know, it was obviously, uh, for those of us who were there, you remember every second of every moment of that day. And I was running floor trading operations for Goldman Sachs at the time. And so we were in four different locations between our office building and three exchanges. And, you know, was responsible for getting 29 people out, a handful from Four World Trade, which is one of the smaller towers where the Twin Towers are. But, you know, as I was leaving our office at 111 Broadway, which is directly across the street, right after the second plane hit, you know, going to get the people out, you know, I'm seeing people jump because that was their best option you know, 103 floors up in the air. And I'm seeing people rushing away from the towers, you know, trying to, to get in a cab or to, you know, walk over to the FDR, the West Side Highway or across the Brooklyn Bridge. But one of my most lasting memories that day was all the hundreds of first responders rushing into the towers while tens of thousands of us were, you know, sprinting the other direction. And, you know, I knew at some point I wanted to give back. Obviously at that moment, I had no idea how or when or what it would look like, you know, and then fast forward several years later, at the time Soldier Socks was launched and that really catapulted me into this, you know, use the word philanthropic journey, but I like to call it more of giving back and helping others. You know, my mother had a phrase of uh, help when you can, not when you have to. And that stuck with me for, you know, 51 years now. And I think in uh, your book and to quote your book, and we'll give our uh, listeners the information to uh, get your book, but you say my calling in life was to help others take their next step forward. And that became your focus. There was a long time before you actually started, you connected with men and women who were deployed overseas, and then you started on that journey of actually helping people take their next step forward. Tell us how it all started, that moment you felt, okay, this is the way to enact this calling. Sure. So 
A friend and mentor of mine uh, was a former Marine, and he always tells me, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine, you're never retired. He'd give me a copy of a letter he'd received from a Marine deployed in Afghanistan, uh, Sergeant Major Luke Converse, who I had the privilege and honor of meeting a, a couple of years ago. And the letter simply stated they weren't living on bases. They were in Jeeps and foxholes. They were hiking all day. And so we asked for tube socks because they'd throw the old ones away and baby wipes. They didn't really have a lot of water. And so baby wipes were their best option for personal hygiene. That's how they would take a shower. So my buddy, his name is Chris also, uh, he came to me and said, you know, Chris, I know you're involved in a few things locally. Maybe you can put some care packages together. So had some young kids in school uh, here in Connecticut and reached out to uh, a local pharmacy to get the baby wipes. And they were very patriotic and said, Chris, you know, we'll give it to you at our cost. And then whenever you purchase, we'll donate in kind. And the same thing happened at a local uh, New Balance sneaker store. Actually, their sock vendor was a Marine. And so he said, okay, we'll give you the socks at cost and we'll also donate the same amount in kind. And so did some things locally here with schools and churches and temples and businesses. And our first shipment was 1,500 pounds. And then it sort of snowballed from there. And it snowballed from there because it connected you to not just the Stanford business community, but also the broader business community. And you said you were collecting at one point, you were collecting socks from Miami to Maine. And what do you think was the key moment where you were able to turn this effort from a neighborhood effort to a national effort, but also that you decided to make that happen, right? Because as when you start an initiative, there's also that a moment where you say, okay, am I taking this national or am I keeping it really local and intimate? So one day I'm at work and my neighbor calls me and she said, Chris, I think I just heard something about you on the radio. And I kind of scratched my head and said, well, you know, what are you talking about? And she said, well, I was listening to Elvis Duran, who's New York City based, and he's syndicated in 40 markets with about 8 million listeners. And she said, he was just talking about collecting socks to send to troops overseas. Now, I had no connection or affiliation to Elvis at the time. Uh, it was definitely not for us at, the, at that time. I thought, well, you know, what the hell? Let me give them a call and reach out and see what I can do. And so literally just went to their website and hit the you know, info at elvisdurand.com email, gave him some background on the organization. A couple of days later, his executive producer called me and said, Chris, we'd love to work with you. Will you come on the show? And you know, I've never done you know, national radio. Uh, luckily, it was radio because I've got a face for radio, apparently. But you know, went on and Elvis was in his team. They were just great very patriotic, very giving. And he's the one that made the calling for us. He says, how about it, America? You know, let's get some socks going here. And literally all those radio stations across the country started sending us socks uh, and baby wipes. And that is what put us on the map. That's what took us national. And it's, it's great in theory and it still is great. But, you know, I live in the Northeast and when you've got uh, a garage full of socks and baby wipes with two feet of snow outside and your wife can't park her car inside, I'm not a family favorite at that point. So, What's wonderful about that story also is that it connected you with service men and women who were deployed, but also with veterans. So tell us a little bit how that became the connect point to your next venture to Soldier Strongs. Sure. As, as the word got out and as our shipments kept going over, either family or friends of deployed uh, troops would write to us asking for their son or daughter or neighbor, whoever it would be, to be added to our list. Deployed troops would hear about us and so they'd reach out to us through the website. And that just really started building the coalition of active duty service members. And then when they would come back home and the tours would be over, they would either stay active duty back here stateside or become retired. And so really just started to build that military and veteran community network, if you will. And that is a brotherhood and sisterhood, you know, and for somebody who never had the honor of wearing the uniform to become part of that has honestly been you know, one of the greatest thrills of my life. And that just really kept us moving in that mission, you know, above and beyond the care packages. Yeah, and I think that you met some severely wounded veterans 
And that's when you realize you're like, okay, there's another way to also help people take their next step forward. And that is physically. And uh, you decided to start, this is where you you kind of looked at what's available, right? For wounded warriors, what's available for them to be able to continue their life when they return. Share a little bit like your focus there and what is Soldier Strong? Like what happened next? Where you went from socks to now Soldier Strong's and, and what it provides? So in the summer of 2012, the, the wars were winding down and troops were coming home. And so there wasn't a need for the care packages anymore. And we were really looking to close up shop because there's nothing else for us to do, thankfully. Uh, and another friend of mine came to me and said, Chris, I think you should look at the post 9-11 GI Bill. There's some pretty significant gaps in there. And so apparently my friends think I have nothing else to do but these, these projects. I did some research and found out that that was true, that there were some, some gaps in there. And so my thinking is that if someone's willing to sacrifice you know, their life for us, they should be able to go to any school of their choice and not let tuition get in the way. So we launched a scholarship program, two different universities, now three universities to help veterans transition from active duty to private sector and, and public service. So we established that program and to help us make that transition, we came up with a mission line of helping service members take their next steps forward. And the idea there was steps forward in the battlefield with tube socks and baby wipes, and now steps forward in job training and education. So that sort of catapulted us into this next chapter or evolution for the organization. And went through that for about six or eight months. And then as the spring of 2013 came across an article in the magazine and a company just outside San Francisco that makes these exoskeleton devices. And what that is, is it's literally a wearable robot that enables a paralyzed person to stand and walk again. And so I thought, how great would it be to help a veteran take literal steps forward? And so through what I call the modern miracle of social media, I uh, reached out to the CEO through LinkedIn. I was going to be out in San Francisco in business and he said, yep, Chris, come on out. We would love to have you. And went out there and toured the facility and was just amazed at what they were doing. Uh, I said, okay, I'm in. Sign me up for 10 of these. And I made the, the big mistake there as a, a sales guy. I didn't ask how much they cost. And each one cost $150,000. So we'd never raised that in a year before because most of our donations were in kind through socks and wipes and things like that. But I thought, okay, you know, let's get in our fundraising crusade here and let's start raising money. And in December of that year, we, we raised the 150 grand and donated our first device. That's exciting. And then you felt that, you know, in a helping veteran take the, their step forward, you could have gone in, in various direction. You chose to go to technology, and, and now it's really the mission of Soldier Strong, right, of providing the most advanced technology to help wounded warriors. Do you feel like this focus on technology, is it because of your background and in technology as a, as a professional that you decided to make that the focus of Soldier Strong? That was certainly the launch pad for it. You know, the original firm I worked for before Goldman Sachs was called Hull Trading. They're a Chicago-based options market-making firm. But I was in New York for their the floor trading operation there. And they were one of the first firms to use handheld electronic devices for real-time pricing. Other firms would have to update their, we call them pricing sheets, every few hours as market moves and market volatility change. And so that really got me early on in terms of technology and, and, and trading and then the evolution of different investment products as well. And so from there, I tried to figure out how I could use my business experience in the public sector here in the nonprofit world. When we got into the exoskeleton space, we'd given a few of those away to first to an individual, but then the device isn't ready to be worn 12 hours a day yet. It's more like physical therapy for the individuals, like you and I going to the gym every day with a personal trainer. And so I want, we found out then that we were the only veteran nonprofit out of roughly 46,000 doing medical devices. And so it really was a, a needle in the haystack moment. So we expanded that to see what other medical devices we could provide that the VA wasn't providing. And so we now offer, I believe, it's six different devices. Two of them are different exoskeletons. 
prosthetic arm, an exoskeleton arm for upper extremity limited mobility, and a prosthetic leg, which has propulsion in the ankle, which eliminates the hobble when the veteran walks. And also share, you know, your vision for that, because you started this, your focus on providing advanced medical device, but you also see this as a pathway to achieve a greater vision of providing the most advanced technology to our veterans. Because if we are to say that we have the most advanced military, then we have to say, well, we also need to provide our veterans with most advanced technology when they come home and they are injured and wounded. So share like that vision around that, because you always, what I so appreciate about your journey and what you do is you're always raising your gaze and seeing the big picture and how you can impact nationwide and have a broad impact. Yeah, you nailed it on the head there in terms of just, you know, looking forward and seeing what else is out there, what's next. And all the, the medical devices that we provide were our byproducts of something called DARPA, which is not a part of the Department of Defense, but what their job is to think and look at the battlefield 30 years from now and then create it today. And so the exoskeleton in particular was for something called the Hulk program, which was, it's a load-bearing device. And so the idea there was to have foot soldiers wear this robot and then they could carry 200 pounds on their back because it would just transfer all the weight to the ground and wouldn't get putting additional strain on the, the body or the knees or the joints. And so that was the transition from this particular device. And my pipe dream, if you will, I mentioned DARPA, is to create VARPA. So the V would be for veterans. And so to your point a moment ago, Sylvia, if you know our Department of Defense, their job is to give our military the most advanced revolutionary technology, well, don't our veterans deserve that? Certainly the injured veterans that you know are willing to sacrifice everything for our country. And so I've spoke to members of you know both parties, uh, both chambers in Washington about this. That's my ultimate goal is to create a VARPA because right now the DARPA's rule is that they cannot make anything once it hits government Department of Defense speculations. There's no transition from government work to the private sector or commercialization of those products. And so their, their job is literally done and things will just be left there. Hi, Sylvie here. Are you ready to trust your voice? I've got something just for you. Get your copy of my newest book, Trust Your Voice. In the book, I give you big ideas and practical steps to gaining confidence so that you can take on new challenges in your life and trust your instincts and your own voice. You can find it on amazon.com and you can also reach out to me at sylvie at trustyourvoicepodcast.com if you have any questions or feedback about the book or this show. So now let's get back to the episode. When something is developed by DARPA, is there a patent that then could be purchased or acquired by a private entity to produce a commercially viable product or medical device? There is, and, and typically they'll let, let them expire because they're not focused on it. And then somebody will come in and find it and scoop it up and go on on the commercial side. So yeah, that's the whole, so that would be the whole idea of, in a way, of VARPA is to capture that intellectual capital to be able to provide uh, advanced medical device. Which also, I had the incredible honor of, of uh, meeting Tyler Densford, who received a exoskeleton suit and came to Chicago and threw the first pitch at Wrigley. And it was a, such a touching moment. I actually brings tears to my eyes because one of the things that he said, he was like, this is the first time in five years that I am standing up for the national anthem. So it was incredible. And I think like part of you meeting all of these 
veterans who've benefited from having a advanced technology to take their step forward, you realize, or, and you saw studied, right, on the, the mental effect of that. It's not just physical. And that, I think, took you another launch pad, a next level. So share a little bit about that. Sure. And before I do that, I just want to touch on what you just mentioned. You know, you're just getting, you know, choked up in terms of seeing Tyler stand up and walk again. I've seen veterans stand up and walk a hundred times for the first time. And every time is special because you literally have changed their life in ways that you could never think of. One veteran in Palo Alto said, this is the first time I've been able to stand up and kiss my wife in three years. One veteran was able to get rehabilitated and walk his daughter down the aisle for her wedding because of this device. And so just knowing that you can help change lives is, is you know, all the reason to do it. But to your question regarding the mental health space, a few years ago, we'd given an exoskeleton to the Denver VA and their chief spinal cord doctor said, Chris, in addition to physical therapy, we would like to use this device for a mental health study. And I kind of scratched my head and said, well, mental health study and what? And she said, quite simply, for someone to stand up and be eye level with the world again. And that's obviously something I take for granted every day. I'm six foot three. And so my eye is a little bit higher. And they shared some of the early results with me and they were astounding. You know, it feels great to be a five foot seven giant again. It's awesome to not look at somebody's belt buckle or have them look down at me like I'm a five-year-old child. And so that led me into the the research of, okay, so what's out there in veterans' mental health? And something we'd been exploring, but it's a big space, it's a crowded space, and I didn't know where our business model of advanced revolutionary technology would fit. So just did some Google researching in veteran mental health, which led to post-traumatic stress, which led to veterans' suicide. And then ended up coming across a gentleman named Dr. Skip Rizzo at the University of Southern California, who had created virtual reality software to help post 9-11 veterans. So again, through LinkedIn, went out and reached out to him, went to visit him in Southern California in February, which living in Connecticut was a good time for me to go and tried the, the equipment. And it was just fascinating. He's got 14 different scenarios or worlds, Afghani village, you're in a Humvee with helicopters flying over, IEDs going off. There's one for military sexual trauma. And so I said, okay, before I say I'm in, how much does it cost? This time I actually asked. And he told me, and this was something, again, that was initially developed by the Department of the Army Department and DOD. And you know they'd spent $30 million and then walked away from it because they didn't realize it would need system upgrades every few years just because the software got better. So we ended up giving them a $100,000 grant to upgrade the, the software. And now we fund and donate this technology to VA medical centers. Yeah, that's amazing. And what's also, how do you see these opportunities, right? You're always thinking of the next thing, right? Like what goes through, share with us, like what goes through your mind? Because you saw people and uh, you saw the the mental effect. And, and I think in your book, you refer to those as invisible wounds. And you're like, okay, what can we do to address those issues? So what goes through your mind to always be thinking of the next level? It's really just seeing what is available to you today and what the need is, you know, where are there gaps? And if you can f- find the gap, and then find something to fill that gap, figure out why isn't that gap been filled yet. And if there is a reason for it, then, you know, I view it as my job to go out there and to fill that gap. You know, for me, it's become sort of, I guess, my, my life's work, if you will, for lack of a better phrase, which is quite funny if I think about, you know, packing tube socks and, and baby wipes 10, 15 years ago, and now funding virtual reality and, and robotic devices. It's fun to see what else is out there, knowing, and especially in today's world, how fast technology is changing. You know, it used to be five to seven years. Now it could be, you know, one to three years or five to seven months. And so things are getting faster. They're getting smaller. They're getting more useful. They've got longer duration. And so it's really just being able to combine my professional experience with my now 10 plus years of nonprofit experience and merging those two 
And I think being able to see through the lens of both public and private sectors has enabled me to advance this mission. But then to your point, also looking to see, okay, what else is out there in that, on the next horizon? It is a gift to be able to focus on the gap, right? And seek it and see, okay, how can I make a difference? And this issue of, of mental health is a broader issue. It, it impacts veterans. As you said, the suicide rate are, are really high. But also, I think I want to mention that the Posse Circle published a brief on uh, mental health that anyone can use to really host and drive a discussion around the issue of mental health. And in the brief, it mentioned that in 2019, American Psychological Association survey, 87% of respondents said that a mental health disorder is nothing to be ashamed of, but 86% also believe that mental illness carries a stigma. And almost 40% said that they would view someone differently if they knew that that person had a mental health disorders. So indicating that there's still a lot of stigma that remains and usually also fewer than half of individuals diagnosed receive treatment. So I think that's also another area, right, that you are seeing a space, a gap to fill is changing the stigma. And this affects every community. I was talking about this issue with people in Montana, where there's also one of the highest suicide rates in these beautiful mountain towns, and stigma also came up. So you founded yet another organization, right, to address stigma. I did. And what led me there was as we rolled out the, the virtuality program in the fall of 2019, to your point, stigma is a big reason why veterans weren't seeking treatment. And specifically, if they raised their hand and said, hey, I need to talk to somebody, they could lose their gun, their security details, their job, their benefits. And so they, you know, they didn't want to do anything about that. They would just sort of bury it. But given what has happened to veteran suicide, that's really raised a lot of red flags. And so what I wanted to do and I'm starting to do is, to your point, mental health is affecting everybody. And so in January of 2020, I launched a new organization called Reach Strong with the idea of creating virtual reality software for private citizens. So maybe for people gone through public shootings or have gone through sexual trauma or children who have been abused, things of that nature. And so transitioning from the, you know, the military population we'd been serving to, to everybody. And you know, then COVID hit, obviously, in, in March of 2020. And that's when you really start to see big spotlight on mental health. And I've been saying for over a year now that that's been the one positive thing of COVID is it has put a huge spotlight on mental health and on stigma in a positive way. It's making people realize, you know, the phrase is it's okay to not be okay. And, you know, you're looking at statistics there. And one of the stats is I believe it's 50 or 55% of the people say that they have a mental health issue or a problem. And that's the people that are admitting it. A lot of people won't because of stigma. And so what we're seeing now are a lot of big name faces in the community, in public sports, in business coming out and coming forward and saying, I'm struggling with some things right now. And that's what we need is more people like that who are in the public eye, under the public lens, saying, you know what, I'm the seven-time Olympic gold athlete. You know, Michael Phelps is an example here, looked to commit suicide. You think he's got everything going from the world with commercial endorsements, with seven gold medals, et cetera, and he's not. We saw Naomi Osaka in tennis. You see more and more all the time. And so my job now is to go out and figure out how we can build this technology uh, and get it out there to, to folks. But the one big thing for me is just to be able to have people start talking about mental health in a positive way. So I'd love, before we uh, wrap up, I would love to kind of connect the dots for our listeners because you've done like so much, but it's, I think in, in your case, it's really fascinating to actually go through 
the dots of your trajectory, right? Your primary job was in technology and financial services. 9-11, you felt this calling. I want to help people take their next step forward. 10 years later, your neighbor brought attention to a very specific problem, the lack of tube socks, and you decide to do something about it. And you turn this into a national venture. And as the need disappeared, instead of keeping it going, you decided to say, well, the next step forward is actually to help people get a job, get the right training, get a job. That also then also led you to just looking at the physical and the invisible wounds of veterans and how can we bring the best technology to help people heal and take their step forward. So it's amazing that the focus that, that you maintain and also your, your gift to see the gap and find a very impactful way to fill it. You also have a very unique ability to bring the right people to the table to advance your goal. And in conclusion, I'd love for you to, to share with us, how do you identify the right networks to become part of? And what's your key to unlocking the deadlock, right? And getting results and having the right people. Because you are at these tables where you want to influence public policy. You want to change minds and and hearts and see real actions. So share with us, how do you do that? I've been the beneficiary, very lucky to have what I call an eclectic Rolodex. Uh, And so had some helpful friends early on. And then as we got some, some, I'll call some wins or some successes, that just got more and more attention. A big win for us was having then VA Secretary Bob McDonald at the Palo Alto VA seeing our exoskeleton donation. And so I established a relationship with him. And then when you just start getting some, some key policymakers or, or key stakeholders like that in your orbit, they have a very big orbit. And so they'll say, hey, let me introduce you to so-and-so over here, or, or you should talk to this person here. And so the more wins and successes you have, the more that you can show, like, I'm not a one-trick pony, or I'm not in this for an interview on TV or whatever, a book deal or a movie. It's I'm doing this for the greater good. I'm doing this for the right reasons. People want to help. They want to be involved. I think people really want to give back. And certainly now, you know, we saw it really after 9-11. We saw that the country come together like you've never seen since World War II. We need that today more than ever, unfortunately. And so just being able to establish those relationships and to prove that you're not going to just use their name or use their connection for personal gain or something like that, but actually to do something good will help you get more introductions and and they will actually go with you on that journey as well. And I think a real key to that is to show them, okay, yes, we've been funding exoskeletons. That's not the only thing that we do and be able to, you know, you mentioned earlier, looking at the horizon, having that gaze up, trying to fill those gaps, being able to identify those gaps, then also knowing when it's time to pivot. You you might not be taking the right next steps forward. You may have to go in, in this direction. And so realizing that and understand that there could be a bit of a change in your path or direction, I think also gives you more credibility with those individuals who are helping you go along the journey. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for being on the show and uh, for sharing your journey. And Chris, your book is coming out, Next Step Forward. Is that the title of your book? Correct. So we will be including in the show notes links to get your book and also to soldierstrong.org, which is your umbrella organization where I think people can find links to all of the other organizations, right? Yes, thank you. And all proceeds from the book are going back to Soldier Strong itself. Well, thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. Really appreciate your time. It's been an honor. Thank you for joining us today. I invite you to do three things. One is review the Policy Circle brief on mental health that you can find on the policycircle.org website. Two, 
You can use the brief to host a conversation in your community or your network. There's still a stigma, and today more than ever, we are seeing high rates of suicide among the youth. So it's critical that we facilitate conversations about this important topic. And finally, your third thing, visit soldierstrong.org and tune into Chris Meek's podcast, Next Step Forward, and also look for his book on Amazon.com. So thank you. Thank you for joining me, Sylvie Legere, on my Trust Your Voice podcast. I hope that this episode brought you a new way to think about your voice, how to trust yourself, and how to use your voice for good in your life and in your community. If you like this podcast, be sure to leave us a review in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. À bientôt.